This past month on Lean Out, we've been talking about the importance of viewpoint diversity and how we can support that in our media. My next guest has thought a lot about this. And today, we're going to have a conversation about what diversity means and why diversity of thought is so important to maintaining a healthy press and a healthy democracy. But first, this is a special bonus episode of Lean Out. And that's because my guest today is going public. I feel very passionate about, you know, my community. I feel very passionate about diversity of thought and debate. And it didn't seem like that's what the company was encouraging in us at all. Jamil Giovanni is a lawyer and Ontario's advocate for community opportunities. He's also the author of Why Young Men, Rage, Race and the Crisis of Identity, and a really important voice in this country. Jamil Giovanni was fired last month by Bell Media and iHeartRadio from his role as radio host. He joins me on the podcast today to talk about his termination and about the broader issues it raises. Jamil Giovanni is my guest today on Lean Out. Jamil, welcome to Lean Out. Well, thanks for having me, Tara. Thanks so much for coming on. We are speaking today because you are going public. You have been terminated in your role as host at Jamil Giovanni tonight. This occurred in January. Let's start at the beginning. When were you hired to host this show? So I was initially hired by iHeartRadio and Bell Media in the summer of 2020. Now, we might remember that the summer of 2020 was a very eventful time. This is uh, weeks after George Floyd was killed by Derek Chauvin in Minneapolis. Black Lives Matter organizing protests, some of which turned into riots across the United States. I think uh, a lot of media companies started to think about you know, the representation of Black communities on their airwaves. And I think that's sort of the context in which myself and iHeartRadio start to engage one another and I start to appear on their radio stations as a host. Mm -hmm. And at what point did you become uncomfortable with the climate there? And in particular, sort of the viewpoints that you feel were not welcome? Well, when I first started to work with iHeartRadio, I saw it as an opportunity to bring some perspective from Black communities that wasn't being showcased in Canadian mainstream media or, frankly, in American mainstream media as well. I was talking to my girlfriend at the time. She's also Black, and and we were both frustrated by things like seeing Black Lives Matter activists destroying churches. You know, we're both devout Christians. We were frustrated by seeing things like Black Lives Matter activists talking about wanting to disrupt the nuclear family. We both believed that the nuclear family is really important for all communities, including Black communities. So I saw it as a chance to say, okay, well, you know, this company wants more Black folks on the air. Let's actually show the diversity of political opinions and and ideas from Black people, because we don't all think the same. We weren't all out there marching with Black Lives Matter. In fact, the vast majority of us were not. And so there's a whole other side to Black communities that we were hoping to showcase. And as the months went by, and we were, you know, thankfully given the chance, and I am grateful to iHeartRadio for giving me the chance to show these different perspectives in the Black community, to have people like Glenn Lowry and Coleman Hughes and from Canada, people like Samuel Say and Tanya Lee on our show. It just sort of became clear that that 
value that I thought we were bringing to the table, it wasn't really being recognized. Like when, when the company would talk about diversity, they never once acknowledged like, wow, you guys have a very diverse show. It's just maybe not what people expect if they don't understand what real diversity of thought looks like. And I started to get weirded out by that, that we would basically be unrecognized for bringing all these different incredible, amazing Black journalists, professors, business leaders onto the show, but then pretty clearly see that the company had a different vision for diversity in mind, one in which didn't really involve bringing heterodox perspectives and sharing different ideas. More so, I think, was about what I would call at least a more superficial approach. And that started making me feel uncomfortable because I knew at some point we were going to sort of butt heads that, you know, my I feel very passionate about, you know, my community. I feel very passionate about diversity of thought and debate. And it didn't seem like that's what the company was encouraging in us at all. And what were some of the signals that you were getting that this was not encouraged? Well, the first I think meaningful signal for me came after I started doing the the nightly show in across the country. So in in February of last year, almost a year ago, I started doing this show across a, a nationally syndicated show, and I thought, okay, well maybe this is a sign that we're kind of getting on the same page. They're they're putting me on in more markets. Like I was getting optimistic that this weird vibe I was feeling of like you don't really belong here, you don't fit in. That like maybe we were working through that. But then as we got closer to Canada Day, it became clear that the company really had a certain approach they wanted to take. And it's one that a lot of other media companies share too, which is because of the the tragic discoveries of what had occurred at residential schools in terms of unmarked children's graves, there was now this sense of like, we couldn't celebrate Canada anymore. It had to be a sad thing that Canada exists that we were being defined by the worst parts of our history, which undeniably are tragic. I mean, as a Black man, I'm very aware of some of the bad things in Canadian history that would have made my life today impossible. So it's not a matter of what debating whether those things existed. But the question becomes, is that how you define your country? And what was really frustrating to me was seeing wealthy corporate executives endorsing this approach where we were supposed to be apologetic in the lead up to our Independence Day, because I think for a lot of them, Canadian identity is not something they hold very dear. If you're going to sort of cast our country in the most negative light possible, a lot of them didn't take that personally. They didn't feel like they were part of that. You know, it was just a political exercise for them. But someone like myself, who, you know, grew up uh, in fairly humble circumstances. I'm the son of an immigrant. I'm from Kenya. My mother is the daughter of immigrants from Ireland and Scotland. This country changed uh, their lives completely. And in my case, where, you know, I don't, I didn't grow up with a lot of money, still don't have a lot of money. I don't share the sort of cultural perspective that these media executives do. So when someone trashes my country, I do take it personally, because when you don't have a lot of things, when you don't have a lot of privileges and excess of opportunity, your country is one of the few things that you do have. Your culture, you hold it dear to yourself. You feel like it's one of the things that brings you some dignity and some hope. And to see the country being approached that way in the lead up to our Independence Day was incredibly frustrating for me. And that I don't think 
it was understood why. I don't think we could really cross that sort of communication barrier of understanding one another. And so instead of it being sort of an opportunity for us to learn from each other, it wound up becoming an opportunity for just more tension and awkwardness because while they were sort of decrying the country as racist and playing clips of, you know, people lamenting residential schools and colonialism and, and the bad things of our history, when I did my Canada Day show, I was interviewing immigrants and, and people from the armed services and people people who had a story of why this country's exceptional in a positive way, not just in a negative way. And I think that was the, the, that was really a boiling point moment for me where I realized, despite the fact that I felt they hired me in part because I'm a black man, my perspective as a black man wasn't going to be factored into how we approach sensitive things like race relations. Mm. Now, the approach to Canada Day, this was communicated to you how? Well, this was basically in staff meetings in the lead up to Canada Day. They told us iHeartRadio is participating in this, which actually other media companies did as well, something called a day to listen. So we were told in the weeks leading up to Canada Day that we were going to be partnering with different organizations to highlight the historical injustices of Canada's past. And then eventually we were also told on June 30th, the day before Canada Day, that every radio show is going to have to play clips of community a- activists, uh, scholars, you know, people who are involved in political activism, and they're airing their opinions on, on Canada's racist past. So it was not really a dialogue at all. Like at no point did anyone say, hey, what do you guys think? Do you want to do this? Is, is there a way we could make this better? Is there a way we could you know, involve your perspective so it doesn't feel like this is being imposed on your show? There was not a single opportunity like that. It was always a, a one-way conversation. And you know the way a lot of these like companies work too is they create an, 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 a scenario in which I think a lot of people... And now, at times I felt this way, but obviously in this case I didn't, where if you do put, want to put your hand up and just say, hey, like maybe there's another way we could approach this with a bit more nuance or a bit more different thinking involved. Yeah, I think a lot of people are scared, right? Because then you start to be the person who's like, doesn't want to talk about Canada's racist past. And it's like, that's it's not really the intention, but that is how I think a lot of people feel they would be treated if they spoke up. So it was it was really uncomfortable, to be honest, to have these, these one-way conversations where we were just sort of being told things and never being asked to offer our opinion. When, Tara, the funny thing is, that is why the on-air talent is hired in the first place, is to give our opinions on the radio for hours every day. And then yet internally in company decisions, we're treated like our opinion doesn't exist at all. I want to move ahead to your termination. Tell me about sort of the emails leading up to your termination. What 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 happened? Yeah, well, you know, um, it, it was starting to feel like the remaining executives there because there was some changes in the fall. And so I started to get a sense of like, at some point, the peop- the remaining executives were not very friendly to my perspective. And I'd, I'd gotten that because, as I said, of these sort of tense moments in the past. So I felt at some point it was going to kind of boil over and some sort of direct conversation would take place. But what happened was actually quite shocking because I expected there to be some sort of, you know, thoughtful deliberation. And instead, you know, a couple of weeks before Christmas, I got an email essentially questioning my commitment to diversity 
and inclusion without really any specific examples, which I did ask for and never received. And that's part of what was very frustrating to me because I feel like if you if you have a problem with what someone is saying, whether it's on the radio or just your friend or your family, and you say, you know, hey, like, here's the thing you said that I thought was insensitive, then we can have a conversation and I can say, oh, I can, or I can, I can try to understand why would you find this insensitive or why do you feel like it's not aligned with your values? Let's dig into the substance here and figure out how we can move forward. But what, what, what Bell Media and iHeartRadio did is not provide substance and just send me an email with these sort of broad assertions, vague assertions that I was somehow misaligned with their diversity and inclusion objectives. And it was very frustrating to receive that email because a mistake people make when having this conversation is assuming that one side of the issue of an issue cares about diversity and inclusion and the other side doesn't. And the reality is that, as I said, you know, we had spent a year building a radio show with more black guests than any other show in their markets. We had, and I would, I would, you know, I'm sure this is debatable, but I would say we had some of the, the most diverse shows in terms of different points of view, heterodox perspectives, life experience than any other show in their markets. So to speak down to me as if this is not something that I think about every day and that I'm passionate about just the same, that was a, a frustrating thing to experience. But especially when you're their only black on-air talent in the talk radio side of things in, in most of these markets, and when you're hired in the circumstances where they're saying they want more black perspectives, but then frustrated that you're not the type of black person that they were expecting, right? So all of that made them sort of questioning my diversity and inclusion commitments quite frustrating. And one of the, the interesting things about that email exchange before the Christmas holidays was the, the insistence on spelling diversity and inclusion with a capital D and a capital I, which I also thought was just a very kind of corporate, bizarre way of doing it, almost like you know, an, another virtue signal to show how much you care about the issues. So there's just so much wrapped up in that email exchange. And, and I did, I did feel the need to defend myself. And, and, and I did do that in my email response. I detailed that we do have a commitment to diversity and inclusion that we did bring onto the show immediately the first uh, interim national party leader who identified as a trans person, the current leader of the Green Party of Canada, that we bring forward people from Black communities to talk about why there might be vaccine hesitancy or talk about the challenges around um, uh, the, the school system failing their kids and, 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 and gun violence issues, that we, we bring forward people with all sorts of different backgrounds and different ideas that are critical to making sure we have a functioning, healthy diverse democracy. And, and yet that wasn't, it didn't seem like that was even understood, perhaps even acknowledged, perhaps even valued. And then they decided, I think in part, because at least my sense of things is I felt they didn't want to have that conversation with me. And so I was taken off the air for a few weeks and told I would return back on, on January 4th. And we'll get to January 4th in a moment. But first, these email exchanges, did they target any specific topics of your coverage? Yeah. So the, the topics that they brought up were discussions around the LGBTQ community. In particular, I think that's a reference to the fact that we had had debates about you know celebrities like Dave Chappelle and J.K. Rowling, their perspectives on gender ideology, and then sort of getting getting other opinions on that from callers, from other guests. I think we had 
all the opinions you would imagine on all sides of that debate represented on the show. But I think there was a frustration that I wasn't saying what the company's perspective on it was, right? Which is that, you know, the, the company takes a fairly mainstream uh, human resources style approach to the issue, encouraging people to, I think, not really debate it or or provide any perspectives that could be seen as controversial. And we just, we thought it was worth uh, covering it from all angles, especially the Dave Chappelle points in his comedy special, which, you know, people were talking about for like two months after that special dropped. But the reason I personally thought that that was a, a conversation worth having is because he was bringing up differences in power and recognition between Black communities and LGBTQ communities. And as a Black person, I thought that was very interesting because I think there is, you know, he was raising some tensions there about how different communities are approached, how the media covers different communities. And I thought that was worth a a conversation worth having. And I thought he made points that if you're going to have a Black person working at your uh, your radio company, I think that's the kind of thing a Black person might be interested in raising because it affects our community, right? And so to me, it was a natural thing to bring up, but I, I do think that it was a, a point of frustration for the Bell Media iHeartRadio folks. And then re- relatedly, the other, one of the other topics that they brought up was vaccine issues. And, you know, my view on this was always, if you want people to get vaccinated, you have to understand what they're saying about why they're not being vaccinated. And especially because Black communities in Canada and in the United States are disproportionately unvaccinated communities, I thought it was very important to have Black uh, community leaders and also politicians who work with those communities to come out and say, hey, here's what we're seeing about why people are getting vaccinated, or in some cases even explaining, hey, this is why I haven't been vaccinated. And we would then try to challenge them, right? And say, well, how does this explain why you wouldn't get the shot? Or have you talked to your, your family doctor? What is the role of the public health agency in giving you advice to, to come to your conclusion? We would try to have you know conversations that really push the, the different factors that weigh into someone's decision on issues like that with a special focus and attention on minority communities, because I do believe that a lot of these media companies and governments spent all of 2020 fostering a sense of distrust between minority communities and the government, telling them, oh, the government's systemically racist, the government doesn't like you, the government is against you. Even Bell and iHeartRadio did that in the lead up to our Independence Day. But then at the same time, say to those communities that you've been encouraging to distrust the government, oh, you need to trust the government with a a snap of your finger as soon as they tell you to put something in your body. And so there's a tension between those two messages. And we explored that on our show. And I do believe that anyone, regardless of what community you come from, if you want people to be vaccinated, you have to have dialogue with people who are not vaccinated. You're not going to get anywhere just trashing these people on the radio. But I felt that that is you know, kind of what they wanted. They wanted people like me to come on the air and say, oh, if you're not vaccinated, you're an idiot. Why don't you line up right away and go and get your shot? And I just, like other shows deliver that message and they do a very effective job at it. That's their right. But if you hire a black person who's from a a largely unvaccinated community to come on your radio show and then talk about vaccinations and expect that the diverse perspective is one that's just going to attack the community I come from. I'm, I'm not going to do that. I mean, and that those are the sorts of things that were so weird is that like, it's like 
the permissible perspective of a black man is to come out and say the police hate you, the police want to kill you, the government's racist, everybody's against you, don't even try in school, you have no chance in our society. But the minute you say, oh, maybe we should have a dialogue with this community about vaccines, about COVID, about how these policies are affecting your family, your community, all of a sudden that's like a taboo, controversial thing. It's just, it's very weird. And in my view, unreasonable to expect someone like an on-air talent to play this sort of spokesperson role for the company as opposed to exploring the genuine issues and concerns in the community that he comes from. It's interesting. And we'll we'll get to some of the broader questions in a moment here, but let's deal with what happened on January 4th. Tell me what happened on January 4th. Well, I was um told that I was going to be I was going to be taken off the air until uh, January 4th. And on January 4th, it was told that we would discuss the issues I raised in my raised in my email response concerning diversity and inclusion. And the executive who, you know, sent the calendar invitation for this meeting on January 4th included her boss as well. So it made me, you know, it, it indicated to me, like, I thought, okay, like maybe some serious conversation is going to happen here where we're going to be able to really dig into these issues. Maybe the company would have some specific examples that they could give me of like, hey, Jamil, here's where you said the wrong thing about you know, gender ideology or the wrong thing about vaccines. Like I was genuinely wanting to explore these things because if I'm saying something wrong, I'd like to know, right? I mean, like I'm not in a position where I'm thinking I know everything about all of these really complicated, important subjects. So if someone was going to be able to show me where I could do a better job having an honest conversation about these things, I was open to that. And so that's what I was expecting to happen on January 4th. I had sort of spent quite a bit of time over the holidays kind of preparing for this and like, you know, just wanting to make sure that I was in a position to really share where I was coming from on these issues and why I thought the approach we had taken on my radio show was was defensible and if not even preferable, right? So I called into the meeting on January 4th, like a lot of us have been accustomed to with this during the COVID era of you know virtual meetings and um instead of having that conversation i was ambushed by a senior human resources consultant who basically came on and said you know we're doing corporate restructuring your your services are no longer needed here's a here's a here's a letter here's a package good luck right mm. and i i said to her i said well just so i'm clear like are we going to have the conversation that we were supposed to have because in my mind it was like Okay, the firing is one thing. Like if you if you if if you felt the need to fire me, like I'm I'm we can sort of compartmentalize that. The issue that I was more concerned about was the issue we had talked about in terms of on-air content because whether I'm the black employee there or someone else's, that issue is going to live on and it's going to affect the next person who might take my job. It's going to affect uh, other people who work there. So I asked, like, are we still able to have that conversation? Because that's something really important to me. And I was basically told that the human resources people had no idea that that was going on. They weren't aware of that context from their perspective was just a corporate restructuring, which mm. made me feel like, well, this seems, you know, like a, a bit of a retaliation, perhaps, or maybe some kind of anger toward me, or a way of burying the conversation. Like, these are all things that I had in my head. I don't know for certain, but mm -hmm. I can only speculate because no one would talk to me. But it certainly felt like when you use the meeting that was supposed to be about diversity inclusion to fire someone, that it's hard to feel like those two things are unrelated. And 
I, I really do feel like there was some other motivation behind my firing. And as I said, I can only speculate because no one will answer my questions. And so when no one wants to have a dialogue with you, you're left with a lot of unanswered things. But certainly the feeling of these two things are related is hard to it's hard to escape. Right. So we will certainly reach out to Bell Media to to ask for comment on this. And I want to move on now. We, we've spoken about your situation in, in detail. I'd like to move on to some broader questions about the climate that we're in right now. Corporate Canada, corporate America, they have embraced diversity initiatives in the past two years. You argue it's a superficial form of diversity. Walk me through your thinking on that. Yeah. So look, I mean, if there are attempts to bring more people into your company from communities that maybe you have historically ignored or communities that you don't have relationships with. So when you're sort of putting the feelers out for a position, you need to make extra effort to connect with those communities. I understand that. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that when in terms of recruitment, in terms of making sure people from different backgrounds see your job posting, that they know the opportunities there, that they're able to apply for it and compete for a position in your company. There's nothing wrong with that if that's what we mean by diversity and inclusion. But what diversity and inclusion has has kind of grown into in corporate America and corporate Canada is more of a, an ideological agenda, a political movement that is less about are we excluding people and what can we do to bring people into our company and is more about how do we deliver certain political and ideological messages? How do we play the role as, a, as social activists? And the reason why mixing these two things is a problem is that on one hand, you're saying you want to diversify your, you know, your employees, your, your, the people in your company. But on the other hand, you're attaching a political agenda to that one that, for example, might decry your country as racist, spread the, the message that, you know, sexism and homophobia and xenophobia are lurking behind every corner and every unturned stone that somehow, if not for corporations spreading the message of wokeness, that the people of the country are somehow so flawed and deranged that we would hate each other if not for our corporate kind of masters giving us the right way forward, right? Like if that's the, the, the message, attaching that to minority communities and expecting that we become a vehicle for that message to be articulated and affirmed is manipulation, right? I mean, that, and that is, that's the part of this whole thing in corporate America, in corporate Canada, that is so frustrating is that it's not just about bringing us into the company. It's about bringing us into the company with certain political expectations and baggage that there are certain values we have, beliefs we have, opinions we have, and that we're going to come into your company and become a talking ahead for those things, that you're going to hire us, and then we're going to take the lead on advancing this political ideological agenda. And certainly there are people from our community who will want to do that. They're probably excited by that. Maybe that is, those are the people you need to be finding. But to assume that because we all look the same, we all feel the same, that is that is actually one of the, you know, kind of under pinning beliefs of racism. And it is also one of the uh, troubling things when it comes to bring us into your company, because we're being brought in to play a role that we didn't really sign up for. No job description says all this stuff on it, that we have ascribed to wokeness at this company. And upon receiving, accepting our job offer as a black person, you are now signing on to this agenda. No one ever says that to you, but many of these companies, that is an underlying assumption 
of what your experience there is going to be like. And as I said, I mean, there's a number of ethical issues around that, but the one that I'm most concerned about is the manipulation of our of our communities, because then these corporations are allowed to present us as if we all ascribe to this, you know, woke political agenda without acknowledging that we are as diverse as white people. So if you assume half of white people agree with something and half of white people don't, we you should probably assume every other community breaks down in some similar fashion, but we don't get that level of respect, right? So that's one of the, the deep things, like as a, as a Black person who's worked in corporate America and corporate Canada, that's one of the things that I personally find very frustrating. And two more quick points, Jamil. You talk about class quite a bit, which is something that's very absent from the current conversation. What role do you see class playing in this conversation right now? It's it's one of the most important things because I believe there is a massive divide between our institutions and the masses of middle class and working class families. I believe that life is getting harder for middle class and working class families when it comes to housing, uh, inflation, cost of living issues, whether the schools you're sending your, your kids to align with your values or not, even though you're paying for those schools with your taxes. In some parts of North America, crime is becoming an increasing issue that affects uniquely poor people. So I think there's a um, there's so many issues that really do play out on class lines in terms of who's affected and who's not. And yet, uh, wealthy executives in these corporations promote an ideology that would actually discourage us from talking about class and instead encourage us to divide ourselves along identity lines, which, if we're being very honest, actually waters down the power of the of middle class and working class families. Because instead of us being like, oh, well, we're all the majority here, like we, we're all going through this together. Let's work together to create political change. Instead, they're dividing us all up. So we're not the majority. And instead, in many cases, we're being asked to fight with each other. So instead of being the take the example we were talking about of Canada Day, for instance, instead of people being like, well, my life is as hard as an indigenous person, as a black person, as a white person. What are these wealthy people in the government? What are these wealthy people in Canada, corporate America doing to, to address these uh, frustrations that I have? Instead, they tell us, well, get talk about your country is racist. So then now the, the middle class person who believes that is arguing with the middle class person who doesn't believe that. And that becomes the political issue that we all fight over instead of the underlying thing, which is what's affecting the average indigenous family in this country is also affecting the average black family and also affecting the average white family. And that should be the conversation we're having, but we don't get encouraged to think that way. And just lastly, I mean, we've been talking a lot about viewpoint diversity. That is something you care a great deal about. That is also something I care a great deal about. What is at stake here? What do we lose when we lose viewpoint diversity in the greater kind of mainstream public media conversation? Oh, that's such an important question. So there's a few things. The first thing we lose is we decrease our likelihood of finding solutions to meaningful problems. Anyone who thinks that they're one corner of the political spectrum has all the solutions is deluding him or him herself. It's just it's un, it's unlikely that any one political party, one ideological movement, one section of the political spectrum has all the answers. So 
in order for us to have a robust public discourse that might actually unearth solutions to some of the problems that affect us, we need to bring as many ideas to the table. Now, I understand there are some things that we want to, we should regard as taboo, some ideas that we consider to be offensive, to be inflammatory. Those are lines and parameters that we have to negotiate and we have to enforce. Absolutely. But the idea that a conservative perspective from a minority community, for instance, might not be integral to resolving things like poverty, gun violence, underachievement in the schools. And I would say even from a conservative person, I'm a conservative, I would never say that we have all the answers and that the left should have no place in the public discourse because I know there are solutions that come from a left-wing political perspective that conservatives need to learn from. Right. I mean, I'm a champion of a of a of a strong minimum wage as an example of that. Right. So to me, that's a key part of this is viewpoint diversity actually increases the likelihood that the best ideas rise to the top and we get to solve problems, which I would hope is the motivation for most of us who talk about political and social issues. Then the, the, the second thing that is at stake here is increasing the gap between the institutions and the population that the institutions are supposed to be responsive to. And unfortunately, a lot of these companies have found a way to make money while alienating large swaths of the population. And so they might not feel like that's an immediate concern. Well, if I can increase my shareholders' values while alienating conservatives or alienating people who are socialists or democratic socialists, alienating some large swath of population, they're willing to seem to be willing to accept that. But the problem with that is we are going to see the polarization that we're seeing now. And those very same companies that say that, that you know, they that, that don't seem concerned about polarization will articulate it in some cases. For example, we see in Canada a lot, a lot of concern about the harassment of journalists, journalists feeling like they're under attack, that their work is not being respected. There's some very good journalists in Canada who are being treated very poorly by people on social media. They receive bad, you know, harmful emails. That's not a healthy thing in our democracy to have. But I do think that one way we can overcome some of those tensions between people on different sides of the political spectrum is to actually make sure that people feel represented in news coverage, that they feel represented in the public conversation. And then we can deal with those tensions actually as part of a, our jobs, as opposed to contributing to those uh, those tensions by actively alienating large portions of the population. And then lastly, Tara, the, the point I'll make about diversity of thought, and this goes back to my experience, the other reason why we need to care about diversity of thought is when we don't value that, it allows for the manipulation of communities. And it's something that, I, I mean, not everyone listening to this is going to be from the Black community, but I would hope that people would care that, you know, we are politically significant. The Democrats in the United States, you know, play to racial anxieties and, you know, racial grievances almost every time there's an election uh, uh, coming up because, it, we, you know, it matters. You know, people, our experience in America, our experience in Canada is relevant to the broader population. But when we are presented in a very narrow and highly politicized way, then we get manipulated in many ways, or at least those of us who are in the public square get manipulated into serving political agendas that might not be good for us or might not be good for the country at large. And so diversity of thought is a way of pushing back on that and saying, look, we expect people, regardless of what they look like, to think in different ways. And that allows for genuine debate to happen as opposed to the kind of manipulation of our communities that we've been seeing, especially over the last two years. But this has been going on for a very long time. Mm. 
what is next for you now? You, you have not filed a lawsuit in this issue right now. What, what is the next step for dealing, coming back now to your situation? What is the next step for you in dealing with this? Yeah, I, I have not fought, fought a lawsuit. I may, I may not. To be honest, I really just wanted to start talking about this because I think it's very relevant to a lot of things that are going on, especially, you know, the, the timing of this to happen right before Black History Month. Also, I felt was a bit of God's providence where I was like, you know, this is a time of, of, of the year where we're going to see a lot of people talking about Black folks, especially a lot of these media companies. And so I just wanted to get out there and start, you know, adding my experience and my insights and what I've learned to the conversation. So the lawsuit stuff, I don't know, you know, if that will happen. Uh, I haven't really thought about it as much, to be honest. I'm more excited just to talk to people like you right now about what's going on. In terms of my next steps, like I am going to be starting a Substack. I've just through your experience, Tara, through people like Glenn Greenwald, Barry Weiss, Glenn Lowry, it's become clear to me that, you know, having a company that's willing to to pre- create a platform for people who want to give honest opinions, to, who are on the pursuit of telling the truth and, and don't want the fear of blowback or if Twitter turns on you that you might lose your job or something. Like, I just think that, that we need those sorts of platforms and Substack seems to be the place where you can actually have that kind of uh, freedom. So, so that is one of the things on my on my list throughout February. I'm going to start writing a Substack and uh, get some inspiration from you and others on 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 how to build that up. But yeah, and aside from that, I, I don't know. You know, I'm I'm kind of uh, open minded right now to what I'll do next. But I do know that I'm I definitely don't want to be in a position where I feel like I can't tell the truth. I, I've really come to value that a lot. You know, going through this whole thing that when you can tell the truth and not have to look over your shoulder, that's a very nice position to be in. Well, Jamil, thank you so much for this conversation today. I'm so glad to get to speak with you about this. Uh, I'm really looking forward to reading your work on Substack. So thank you again. Thank you, Tara. Lean Out did reach out to Bell Media and iHeartRadio's reps for comment. We received this statement from a Bell Media spokesperson. We do not comment on employee matters. is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.